0: Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwomen. I am making another plug. Guess what? For me, I wouldn't be taking all this great advice I've been being given by listening to these incredible women if I didn't also say, hey, when you're in the market for a new bag, an amazing clothing item or shoe, buy me. Buy woman owned. Support us. Goes a long way. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and you enjoy uh, wearing me while you're listening. Today's guest is Ruzwana Bashir, the founder of Peak, take a listen to find out all things, company launch, how she built it, and what Peak is. I'm with Ruzwana Bashir, the founder of Peak and someone I've seen at fun dinner parties, sometimes the only other woman at these dinner parties. Welcome. Thank you. So let's just start off for those who don't know, what is Peak? So Peak is a one-stop shop for
1: travelers and locals to book great experiences. So we book um, about 20,000 experiences that range from zip lining and boat tours to food tours and going to a wine tour. So it's kind of a mix of different things that you can do in your home city and when you're going on vacation.
0: And it's for solo travelers or groups or families or
1: whoever? It's for everyone. So we've helped book, hundreds of millions of dollars of bookings at this point and so seven millions of customers so it all range from people taking their kids for a fun day of rock climbing all the way through to a romantic you know holiday in Hawaii. Wow. And how old is Peak? So we started the business in 2012 okay. so and we've got um, almost 200 people in the team. Wow And you had
0: some big news recently Did't I read something big? Well, we, um, I, I like the fact that we
1: always think that there's big news. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we've been scaling up the business a lot. So we've we've raised over $40 million um, and that was probably what you kind of saw. We've really kind of owned our space. So we're the leader in the experiences market, which is a very big market. So we are uh, the biggest player in the United States um, and we're, we're leading our industry in terms of helping people find great things to do and to help the businesses get online.
0: Wow. Can we talk about what it feels like? Like, do you feel a pressure when you've raised $40 million that is uncomfortable or it's fine with you? Um, I think it's fine with me as long as we use it in the right ways. Right. You know, I think
1: that um, I can kind of think of it as uh, the ingredients for a meal that you're cooking. Like, they're one of the ingredients. It helps you. Um, but if you don't use them properly, then you wasted that and your meal still not going to be great. Right. So. That's how I think about it. Um, I think the pressure is that, you know, you've now got more stakeholders, more people who care about what happens in the business. Um, But I think I deeply care anyway, and I want to make sure that everybody wins, whether they're the people that are in our team, our investors uh, and our consumers. So I think I probably always put a lot of pressure on myself anyway. Um, This just means that I think we've got more tools in order to do what we want to do.
0: What occurred that you had this idea to launch Peak? So I
1: went to Istanbul for a trip with my girlfriends. It was my birthday and I um, really wanted to find great things to do. And it took me hours and hours to figure out what to do. And then I had to call all these businesses to be able to get these cool experiences that I wanted to do. Um, And the whole process was lengthy and hard. And I didn't know why I couldn't go to a one-stop shop to be able to book and buy. Um, And there wasn't really anything out there. And so that's what inspired me to start Peak.com. So you started it, woman, one woman show. I did, I did. But very quickly, I realized that I needed to build um, technology and I needed to have a great website and um, there was going to be a lot under the hood. And so I went to find a co-founder who was technical. You know, my background had all been on the business side. And so I wanted to find somebody who um, was a techie.
0: Okay. And prior to doing Peak, what were you doing?
1: So I worked in finance originally. Okay. So um, I uh, worked at Garmin and then Blackstone. And I moved to America to go to business school. Um, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought that would teach me how to be an entrepreneur. I was pretty wrong about that, actually. It turns <laughs> out business school doesn't teach you that much around entrepreneurship. But it got me to the United States. Um, and I started working on a couple of startups here in New York, Gilt Group and Artsy. And that really kind of wet my appetite around building companies. And so um, that was the experience I had before I started
0: and you wanted to stay in the states. You didn't want to
1: go back to Europe. I always kind of thought I would end up going back, but I fell in love with um America and and kind of entrepreneurship in the US. I think there's such a positive and optimistic outlook that um Americans have about approaching and building new things. Um I think there's not as much of a fear of failure as we have in the and in, in Europe, and so that kind of worked for starting a business.
0: So, how many years has has it been around? It's about 7 years. Wow. How do you deal with management up to all your investors who, you know, before when we had lots of investors, like you almost feel like your homework assignment, you know, like quarterly homework assignments, but you also have employees and you have customers. So talk to me about how you like sort of split your mind into three service groups. Yeah. I mean, I think it is tricky because
1: it's almost, there's there's so much you can do for each party. In the end, the customer comes first. So for us, that's the biggest focus. Um, And, you know, really what we try to do is be really transparent. So, you know, information for our team and our investors can be very similar. Um, Ultimately, we want everybody in our company to know what's going on and you know how we're winning and how we're actually losing how we're doing things that aren't working and so in the end those two things and any kind of work that you're doing ends up being very similar um and um you know i think it's also important to have investors that want to help as much as um kind of you know there's a lot of accountability and governance but there's also hey this here's the path we're going on how could you contribute to that and so trying to make sure that everybody's focused on those things because otherwise i think it can feel like homework as opposed to a partnership and working together yeah. And I haven't necessarily always gotten that right. Sometimes it can be really challenging yeah. to, to kind of get that balance, um, especially since you're not always going to have a situation where things are going really, really well and you want to build that trust and rapport and credibility whilst also acknowledging that you're going to make mistakes. Right. Right.
0: And do you feel um, as a woman, as a woman of color, uh, do you feel that your fundraising was harder or like the things that that we constantly hear, right? Two percent of women get funding and all those fun stats or? I think that it is harder for people who don't, you know, fall into that stereotype of what people expect
1: for tech companies, Um, especially for going to investors that are traditional tech investors. I think um, the the kind of awareness of that bias is, is has increased over time. So when I was fundraising, I think people weren't really recognizing that it might be different um, for a woman versus a man going into that room and that people might be making some biases, even though their intention may not be there, they're making assumptions. Um, and I definitely found that people said things or, or kind of made assumptions that I think they wouldn't have made if they weren't judging me by the way that I looked. Right. Um, and that was kind of tricky. And I, I wasn't really sure in the early days on how to deal with that. And so over time, what I realized is that it was important to kind of be almost authentic self and also kind of get ahead of the concerns that people might have. And so I knew that that was something that was important. And so I, you know, I made sure that I helped them understand why I started the business and my background and, and what we'd done already and the full team we had, um, because I understood that there were some gaps that I was going to have to make up for, which, you know, weren't fair. Um, but there were biases I I knew that they might have, um, and so that that was kind of how I dealt with it. But I, I do think that it's you know trickier for women um, and women of color to to raise capital. It is harder because those ways of being able to bond with someone uh, are different. And, and investing is a mixture of the the idea and the market opportunity and the timing and the desire to say, I want to work with this person and build a company with them. And um, sometimes you can't build those kind of uh, relationships and that rapport. I was being quite reserved when I went into the meetings because I knew, you know, I think in some ways I I wanted to be my most professional self. And in the end, actually, you don't want to just be your professional self. You want to be your authentic self because then people get to you and say, yes, I want to partner with you to build this business. And I'm really excited about this opportunity. And I was a bit more reserved and formal when I went in and I did not think that really worked. So how did you know to, to let your guard down and just be more you? I think it was actually over time I realized people made all these assumptions. And so, you know, I didn't have this really clear path to entrepreneurship, right? So I grew up in Yorkshire in the middle of nowhere. My dad sold fruit and vegetables. My mum doesn't speak English. And I grew up in this very poor community. It was very conservative. And so I was the only kid to ever kind of get out and get a scholarship to go to Oxford. And it changed my life. And so I was always used to working really hard to get, to something and kind of trying to make it look like it was flawless, but like, you know, like a, you know, the duck under the water, your, your feet are flapping and you're trying to still be graceful on top of And so I'd always been used to, you know, having to work really hard to get to something, but hopefully trying to fit in. And so, you know, I, and then I'd gone to Oxford and after when I was at Oxford, I became president of the union, which is a debating society and it's very prestigious and lots of prime ministers have done that. And so I was kind of, you know, trying to always fit in and, and do these these great things that would show that I was capable. And when I went into the VC rooms, I realized that by ticking all these boxes and getting this kind of pedigree, that none of them thought that I had to fight really hard for things. So, you know, somebody passed on investing in peak and they said, well, I wasn't sure you had the grit to do this. And I thought, you know, bloody hell, like, are you kidding? <laughs> You know, in order to get here every time, you know, I was the first woman hired into my team at Blackstone and there were 100 people, you know, and so I was always used to kind of, you know, getting these obstacles and overcoming them. But I think in some ways by not showing how hard that had been or being kind of, you know, acting as though that wasn't tough. um I was uh, letting myself down because people didn't realize that I'd been through really tough things and that I could get through it. Um, so that was one of, the, one of the lessons for me. When I, when somebody said that, I thought, you know, you've got me completely wrong, but I get what you might have. You didn't ask the questions, which wasn't fair. You made a lot of assumptions. But, um, but equally, I, I should do a better job of showing you why I'm passionate about what I do, why I'm hardworking, and why I've probably got more capabilities and skills than you might see on my resume, which looks a bit too business schooly perfect.
0: Makes total sense. So I want to go back to growing up. What languages your mom speak? Um, So we speak Urdu when I was growing up. So my parents are from Pakistan. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So your dad sold vegetables. You grew up in a poor community that was very conservative. So when you sort of like go across the chasm and here you are, a, a huge company, you've raised all this money, you're very successful. Do you still feel like you're that little girl who's trying to... Like for me, like I, I always have a feeling of like growing up and my parents were very strict and we weren't given stuff. We had to earn it. And I'm still, I always feel that. Like I, I always had this idea of like, it's never enough, you know, even though it's more than a lot of people might ever have. Right. But do you have that? Does it stick with you?
1: Yeah. I think I probably have a similar feel. I also think I feel quite Fortunate um, in the sense that a lot of people that I grew up with didn't have a lot of opportunity. And so, especially a lot of the women I grew up with, they didn't get a chance to get educated. They didn't get a chance to ever work. You know, a lot of them had arranged marriages. And so, um, they couldn't even pick the partner that they were with. And so, you know, there's this incredible freedom that I have, but then also this responsibility that comes with it, which is, well, if I'm the lucky one, well, I've got to make the most of it. So, I think I have a little bit of the same kind of attitude where I'm always kind of pushing myself a lot harder um, because of that. And because I also think that there's, you know, an opportunity to give back. And so I want to do more um, and be able to build a really great, successful company and and be able to help others that were like me. I think I definitely feel we're in a time where the world is quite unequal. And I definitely feel that personally around, you know, I was really lucky because I got these breaks in England. You know, when I went to Oxford, I didn't pay for my education. I didn't pay any tuition. And, but you worked really hard to get that
0: scholarship, I yeah, bet. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, but, you know, you realize so many people today would work really hard, but they still can't get that opportunity. Right. And so I definitely feel also this kind of, you know, sense of really deep empathy for for those that aren't as fortunate because I remember myself in those situations where, you know, there wasn't a lot of dignity in being the poor kid, you know, there wasn't a lot of dignity in, in not fitting in and trying to and looking different. And, you know, I think that was... Um, That was tough. And so I think it's given me a lot of empathy, um, but it's also, you know, it also means that I kind of want to achieve a lot because I think it's important um, to try and make a difference if, if you've got the opportunity to do that.
0: Totally so did you was it hard to have that discussion with your parents of like you're not going to arrange marriage for me, and I'm going to go to college?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was always kind of this 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 difference that that was hard for them to accept um and I think there are cultural differences, and I think now you know I realize that you kind of have to make your own path and sometimes you're going to do things that people don't agree with and that actually you don't think are the right things for them to do either, and so I kind of very early had to get my own sense of what was right and wrong and what I wanted to do, and you know kind of build my own kind of moral compass about, you know, how to behave in life. Um, and and that was a hard thing to do when you're at university and, a, you know, kind of a spotty nosed teenager, but I kind of had to do that.
0: Yeah. And so what are some of the either expected or unexpected challenges you've had in personal career that have like, I don't know, been transformative for you? What a great big question. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: um, well, I would say on the professional side, I think You know, starting a company, you put your name on the door, as you know. Um, And so, I I didn't realize how much that pressure I would feel um, and that um, obligation. I think sometimes that I wasn't able to make the best decisions because I was kind of too emotionally involved, and um, you know, it was very stressful. And and there was a toll that that took on you personally. Um, And and I think that um, I wasn't expecting that because I'd always worked for very done really hard things but when it's kind of your baby and every you feel everything every shock and so I think um, those ups and downs were challenging and you know I found myself kind of wanting to go home and eat pizza and chocolate cake you know if you do that too many times you realize you don't fit into your clothes anymore and you know <laughs> it kind of you know you're you're kind of you know you're really tired and exhausted and you're still pushing yourself for these 80 90 hours weeks and so that was really hard to kind of get through um, and uh, and still feel you know like you're a great entrepreneur. And you can do this because you've got to have the confidence in order to do that. Um, I think on the personal level, one of the most challenging, transformative things I did was that when I started the company, uh, um, I'd been abused as a kid. I'd been sexually abused by a neighbor when I was young. And I actually went back and prosecuted my abuser. Wow. And so... That was something that I kind of did quite privately. And I think there was a lot of kind of, for me, it, this is before the Me Too kind of era where people were sharing these kind of things. And so it felt very scary to kind of have people know something that was deeply personal about you. And so I um, I went and kind of did, did this, didn't really tell anyone. Um, he ended up going to jail. And so we got a successful prosecution. And so I felt this obligation had been lifted because I knew that other kids were probably being abused if he wasn't... If if I didn't
0: do something about it. How how old were you when this happened and how long after it did you prosecute him?
1: So I was about nine or 10 when it happened and um, I didn't prosecute it for 20 years. Wow. You know? So I was kind of an adult by the time I started. And so um, I went back you know, got this prosecution and the the whole process is kind of quite, uh, it's quite challenging and you're going to the police and you're testifying in court. And, its you know, it was a lot of stuff that I kind of largely dealt with on my own without really telling a lot of people. And so there were only a couple of people in my life that even knew about it. Um, And then, you know, afterwards, basically, you know, some stuff happened in the UK and, um, you know, these issues of abuse suddenly rose up in the media. And uh, I realized I had to speak up about my experience because there was a lot of situations where other Pakistani kids had been abused and and they weren't speaking up because there's a lot of shame in the community about talking about issues like this. And so I ended up writing an article um, for The Guardian um, that they put on their front cover of their newspaper and it was read by a million people. And all of a sudden I'd gone from having this thing that was deeply personal. It was everywhere and it was so scary to put something out there um, and have people know something really personal, but also I wanted to have an impact with it, which is I wanted to change some of the laws and some of the things that were going on in the UK. And so that was the most scary thing I've ever done. Um, And it was also really transformative because it kind of was something that I'd kept secret, but it wasn't really my secret to be ashamed of, you know? And equally, it was something where I wasn't being true to myself because this was something that defined part of my story. And you know, I was able to take ownership of it and kind of almost close the door on that and say, okay, well, this was something that you know was obviously an awful thing, um, but there has been kind of some element of justice and there's hopefully a positive impact that came out of it. Um, it also meant that my interactions with lots of people changed because all of a sudden. All these people were coming up to me and sharing their stories, and so before Me Too happened, I had a sense: wow, we have this kind of pandemic of abuse and you know harassment and you know issues where you know whether it's people as children or or you know rape as adults. There was just a lot of this awful stuff that was going on, and so. It made me really realize that so many of us are suffering without speaking up and it changed my relationship with others because I felt I could be more vulnerable and open because before that I was always kind of being quite tough and, and not really letting people in. And so I think it really transformed who I was um, and changed my, changed my perception of the world and, and
0: it allowed me to actually have much more meaningful relationships with people. Yeah, because you just keep that stuff hidden. You're also, whatever you're holding in, you're also holding back. Right. Exactly.
1: And and so I I think I also was able to kind of recognize that, you know, th- this isn't unfortunately unique, right? Um, and so before Me Too happened, I just heard from so many people from so many different places. So, you know, um, another entrepreneur I knew told me he'd been abused by a police officer in his hometown in Maine through to, you know, um, you know, from Switzerland, someone from Nigeria, all of them kind of talking about how their communities wouldn't let them kind of, you know, face up to these things. And so it was a really powerful piece um, for me. um, And I think hopefully helped people, which was important. In fact, I talked to my friend, Ronan Farrow, about it a few years ago, and wow. um, and this was before he obviously did the Me Too reporting, and so I remember us having kind of long conversations about how these things can remain hidden and things, and so it's definitely the case that I think we as a society have moved on um, and really acknowledged that there are all these important things we have to do to tackle these ills and abuses and in, in in our communities, but um, I, I got a taste of it and I realized that we are more empowered than we think. And, you know, often it's, it's our ability to say, no, we won't stand for this, that that matters. It was very empowering
0: yeah. um, as
1: much as it was kind of obviously challenging to go through.
0: But I think what you've done is like some women who were obviously victims have chosen to remain victims. And I love that you sort of said, no, no, I'm going to be in control and I'm going to take this back. What would you say that, that, how did you know how to do that?
1: I mean, I think I didn't know how to do that, but I think I've always been somebody who, you know, things were always tough and it was always hard to get things done. And so I kind of realized that, you know, when things are challenging, you have to kind of own it and and am trying to make the best of it. And so I'm reasonably optimistic. And so I kind of thought this was been really awful, but you know, I'm going to move on and I'm going to give myself the tools that I needed to go on. So it wasn't like I didn't go to a therapist and try and talk through these things and realize, you know, what was going on and how I felt about it. But I think that um, I wanted to translate it into something positive. And that's why, you know, I think there are, that's a journey that was really challenging. There have been lots of parts of the journey as an entrepreneur or with work or mistakes that you've made. And I think you kind of have to recognize that there's going to be things that you're, you know, you didn't do well or that you're upset about, but there's kind of not a lot gained from not moving on from that and just trying to take the best lessons you can. And so that's always my attitude. And I've got quite a, I think, a learning mindset where I'm like, it's okay that I didn't do that the way I wanted to, or something didn't work perfectly. Um, But you can move on. I think the other thing that was important to me was to help people understand that that isn't what defines you, Mm -hmm. right? So this was something that was really awful. um, And I was able to kind of, you know, I think, Help others, but it's not the only part of my life story. You know, it's kind of, you know, there's a whole big uh, um, amount of things that I want to do in the world. And actually, it's quite funny because this is something that's quite associated with suffering. But when I look at my life's worth, it's it's actually about helping people be happy. Yeah. Right. And when what I really care about is inspiring joy. That's the reason I started Peak was because I thought, isn't, you know, I want to help people have fun. Mm -hmm. I want to, you know, connection. And um uh and human connection is so important. And I wanted to give people more opportunities to be able to go out and have fun moments with the people they care about. So maybe it's a great date night or maybe it's fun with your kids. I just wanted people to be able to have um this joy. And and so actually um at Peak, what's really fun about my job is that you know, we're having this positive impact while we help thousands of entrepreneurs to grow their businesses. And then, you know, people come and do these experiences and they have this amazing time on their trip, you know? And so um, a lot of what I care about is about inspiring that joy. But you've got to recognize that there's also a lot of suffering in the world that we have to
0: alleviate. Totally. So each time I see you, I'm struck by your optimism, your happiness. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs and I, I'm going to raise my hand first to be like, oh, it's hard and like, you know, but you don't seem to wear that on your sleeve. You How know, have you gotten that mindset? I think that, you know, like everybody, I have my days when I'm down yeah. and, you know, I
1: feel like, oh, nothing's going right
0: today, you know? But even you say uh, that with a smile,
1: it's yeah, amazing. I just, I think I'm kind of, I guess in some ways, I'm just used to it a little bit, okay. you know? I think that... um you know, when I was a kid, my, my parents couldn't help me with my homework and I couldn't do it. So like then it was just I remember being um, 12 years old and I, I, I kind of sucked at math, you know, and I couldn't get it. And then the teacher gave me this probably book from the 1940s because it's in the north of England and, not, you know, and, and, and said, here's, you know, these problem sets. And I went away over the summer and I did hundreds of these problem sets and I came back and I was the best kid in class. And it meant that I ended up doing really well at math and getting all my A's and stuff. And, you know, I realized that sometimes you just not, things suck, but, you know, often if you put your work in, you can kind of get there. And so I think knowing that there's a bit more control over things than you think you do, think you have helps me. But I also have to check myself, you know, there's times when I'm feeling, you know, down and and, and I have to kind of say, hey, is this really where you want to be? Um, you know, and I can... I'll try and get a good night's sleep and the things that I think I know help me get into that good and positive mood but it's still a challenge for me as well especially sometimes when um, lots of bad stuff happens at the same time, and it feels really stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those moments, I just have to acknowledge it's really stressful, and almost take those moments and not push myself quite as much. You know, um, you know, those are the times where I will say, okay, well, I'm not going to let myself sleep for five hours tonight because I know that I kind of need to get some rest so that I can be good tomorrow. So I think it's about also knowing your limits a little bit and trying to live within those if you can. Because I think when I was younger, I didn't do that. And then I'd end up really putting myself in positions where I was like really burnt out. or It was really hard. It took enormous discipline to get through it in a way that perhaps that energy is not there as you get older, you know. So um, I think I'm learning how to do it. But there are times for me that are really difficult as well. And I think quite fortunate because I think sometimes people do have you know, mental illness or some other things to deal with, and I haven't had that in my life. But you know, like everybody, I have times when it seems overwhelming, and I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and um, and I don't know that I deal with it really well. Um, sometimes I'm like, oh wow, I just wasted you know a whole day because I was just worried and I couldn't get anything done, and then you're kind of even more in a cycle. But I do try to have that check of okay, we'll get the three most important things done and then we'll move on and and try and get wins out of the day.
0: Yeah. So what's a great piece of advice either you have been given that you want to pass on or that you've gleaned from your years of entrepreneurship? I
1: think it really is kind
0: of keeping your
1: confidence. Um, I think that often so much kind of stuff can happen that it's really hard not to look at things and think that you made lots of mistakes. And then to feel pretty down on yourself. And then you don't have the confidence to, to be able to make decisions or do the things you need to do. I remember, I think I read a quote, I think it was from Barack Obama, who kind of said, well, when something gets onto my plate, it, it means that nobody else can kind of figure it out. Which means it's a really tough problem. So if I kind of get it right half the time, then I'm probably doing pretty well because it seems that nobody else wants to deal with this issue and it's too hard. And so I think in some ways as a CEO or an entrepreneur, that's kind of how things are. Things only come to you when it's fire or something terrible happened or it's really hard to figure it out. And so I think you have to kind of hold yourself accountable, but also recognize that it's really tough um, and then have that confidence so that even if you've done something poorly the next day, you can kind of have a fresh start. And that's probably been the most important thing for me. And again, you know, there are weeks when I don't feel that way, but um, then there are weeks that you're on top of things and you're doing really well and you feel great, but also you've got to recognize that might be a moment in time. Um, It can be dangerous to either drink too much of your own Kool-Aid or get really down. And so um, having that confidence to tackle everything every day is important. And I think as women, often we hold ourselves, I think you mentioned earlier, to this crazy high bar, right? You you know, you had, it wasn't really easy for you to get to where you are, but you still need to do so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never enough. No, there's and, no putting your feet up. Exactly. And, and, and so I think as women, especially, I think we can beat ourselves up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to learn to do that a little less and have that confidence each day, even when, you know, I might not feel I deserved it.
0: I think that there's this through line and I keep trying to pick it apart of like, who started the marketing campaign that this should be easy? Because like everyone is always shocked about how hard it is. And I'm like, but someone marketed us that it shouldn't be, like if everyone said, this is going to suck a lot and it's going to be hard, (laughs) we wouldn't be so like deer in headlights. Like, oh, you couldn't have told me that was going to happen. Yeah, I think in some ways you have to have the naive optimism, otherwise you would never start, right? (laughs) True. Um, uh,
1: And, um, you know. I think the marketing that people have is because they only see the good bits. I think people read the articles or they read when the news is there, right? To your point, you know, you have some great news, right? You're not reading the terrible news that we only only keep to ourselves because we don't want anyone to know about it, right? Right. Um, And also there is a little bit of, of, you know, in a young company, you kind of have to fake it till you make it, right? And so you don't want to tell people about the strife um, and how it's been really hard or, you know, you've got lots of investors telling you no, Right. They didn't want to invest in your idea because that seems that rejection seems like it it means that it's not a good idea. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that because we're not good at sharing the hard pieces and because the way that we celebrate things is often in those milestones, they know about your one day and your one moment of 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 extreme high. Um, they never know about the three hundred and sixty-four days that were either normal or kind of crappy. Mm-hmm. And so we probably need to do a better job of telling that, but um, it can be hard to be vulnerable enough to say that you had something where lots of people said no right. and um, and that you you've made lots of mistakes and things aren't working in certain areas of the business. And, you know, I think we force kind of people to have a lot of bravado because if you don't have that bravado, then often those companies won't make it because it's a bit self-fulfilling.
0: Right. So do you take your own advice and book yourself great experiences on Peak? I try to,
1: yeah, <laughs> and I also try to go on trips a lot, right? Um, you know, I am. Um, I think it's really important for creativity and for your general happiness, and also to build these connections with people. Um, so I think it's it's a really big piece of kind of what I think is important and um, how I live in my life. And so the reason I started the business because it is personally a big passion. I also think it's important to like learn about other cultures and um, understand other communities. And so for me, um, it is a big piece of what I do. And so. And it's actually funny because I'll talk to people, I don't know, as a designer, do you end up taking a lot of trips for inspiration as well or, you know, doing that as part of your work?
0: Um, I've never strictly taken a trip for inspiration. I've always had to build inspiration into a trip. But I would like to be that person. Yeah. Eventually to just be like, I'm going to go get inspired. But I feel like. Time and money have always conspired that I have to like fit a zillion things into something.
1: Yeah. So I think, I think that, um, I think what I'd like everyone to do is have everyday adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make is that we save things up for vacation when, in fact, every weekend is an opportunity to do something fun, to learn something new. You can do a cooking class, you know, on a Saturday afternoon with your friends, right? And you could, um, you know, help your kids learn how to horse ride at the weekend. You don't have to, you don't have to have these big, you know, long trips that you save up all the fun times for. Um, I think what I'd like people to do is have everyday experiences that they're having fun with um, and that they're remembering that, you know, Probably sitting in front of Netflix for a couple of hours is not as enriching as going and having um, some moments with people that you care about. And so even if that's going to an escape room because you want to do a puzzle with your friends and you're nerdy through to, you know, learning something new, I think I really want to encourage people to do that. And I definitely do that. Um, And I find it a great way to spend time with people that I care about, but I've always had that bug, bug, I think. I just want more people to have it because I know that experiences make you happier than product by a long way. And I think in an age of social media where you know we look on our phones and you can spend an hour you know, on social media, it doesn't make you feel good. You didn't no. get any quality time with anyone. You have no memory. And so I think for our happiness, I think we do need to have more experiences.
0: Agreed. So my last and final question is, um, what would we be surprised to know about you? I was surprised to know about me. Well, I'm a big nerd,
1: you know, and so it's, <laughs> you're a fashionable nerd. And you know, I kind of, you know, even if I'm if I'm wearing my well, well, the funny thing is because I am um, I, I love clothes, um, and that's because one of when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to wear Western clothes, so I wore traditional. Um, Pakistani shawar kameez um, which is not the world's most flattering outfit it has What, to be what is a shawar kameez? it's a, basically a, it's, it's like a dress um, with some trousers underneath but it's quite baggy and, and a, a scarf um, so you know something that you might have seen like someone like Benazir Bhutto wear or Malala Yousafzai but both of whom are Pakistani um, and so um, I you know I never got to wear anything else I was growing up as a kid in England where people were wearing these kind of cool clothes and jeans and I just didn't get to do anything and so part of the reason that I am um, I enjoy being playful with clothes is partly it's creativity, right It's fun to be able to show your you know creativity in 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 that way. Um, but it's also because I just never got that choice. And so now that I am able to wear whatever I want um, I kind of think yeah just wear some sequins. Why not? Hey, <laughs> okay. it's Monday. Put your sequins on. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so the thing that people already don't know about me is that I'm a massive nerd. And so I love um, history and, and I will read, um, you know, I'm a junkie for historical fiction, <laughs> which is kind of like, you know, makes you feel like you're still being nerdy, but it's actually also kind of trashy stories um, sometimes. So um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I love some historical fiction. Love
0: that. Leon Uris is good. For that. Okay, great. Yeah. All yeah. right, I do check that it, out. Back when I used to read that yeah. that's some good historical with a little trash, you know, love story in there too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm in <laughs> well, Thank you. Thank you. That was Ruzwana Bashir, the founder of Peak. You can follow what she's up to and definitely get more information of her at Peak. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Thank you, as always, for writing in. Sometimes I'm not the quickest at getting back to you, but I promise you I'm reading your reviews, I'm reading your comments, and I appreciate them so much. Keep listening, keep downloading, keep sharing, and thanks for making this a joy to bring to you.